Montreal makes what many would classify as a Mark Bergman gamble for their next GM, while an ECHL player is not in a very good spot after a questionable gesture was made towards Jordan Subban, who is black. Over in Long Island, a member of the 1980s Islanders dynasty is being mourned after passing away at age 67. And in our main topic this week, we debate AHLers who deserve a primetime opportunity. Episode 304 of the Lace Mop Podcast starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Dubuff. Montreal has a new GM, and hands up, Brett, if you expected who they named to be the guy leading the charge, Ken Hughes, a player agent. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to do this. And not only a player agent, but he's a guy in Massachusetts. Um... <laughs> Uh, or lives another in Boston connection. Yeah, another Boston connection. Scott Gordon being the other guy involved with Montreal. Jeff Gordon, but yeah. Jeff Gordon. What did I say? Scott, Scott Gordon. Gordon. Oh yeah. Jeff Gordon's the the NASCAR driver too, right? So yeah. <laughs> Jeff weird. Gordon. Yeah. I don't know why I said Scott Gordon, but anyways, <laughs> uh, Kent Kent Hughes is the guy. Um, yeah, he was a player agent. He uh, is most famous for uh, being a player agent for Vinny LeCavier. And a Patrice Bergeron, who are both like um, French Canadian players, so that's probably the connection. Uh, he also was born in Montreal, I guess. Oh no, no, he wasn't born in Montreal, but um, I'm not sure why I, I thought that. I guess I got confused there. But yeah, he's from uh, Massachusetts. Um, but uh, yeah, so he, he has ties to players who are from Montreal. Yeah. Mike Matheson being the most obscure one, right? Um, also, of it, what's what's funny and interesting about him is uh, his he has two sons. Uh, one who is uh, Riley Hughes, um, who play who plays for Northeastern University, um, and um, he got drafted by the New York Rangers. Um, in the seventh round in 2018, and Jeff Gordon was the guy who drafted him, so maybe there is that angle there, um, or maybe Scott Gordon's like, oh, maybe we should pick up this guy. I, I know I drafted his son or something like that. The other funny thing is is that his uh, that Riley Hughes's brother and Kent Hughes's son is a, is another Jack Hughes. Um, and so, yes, that is right. Not only, uh, are we about to get Jack Hughes into the league? Um, he, apparently he's also pretty good. He's like ranked number 27 on Bob McKenzie's list right now. So that's like in the late first round. Um, but, um, and he, although he has nine points in 24 games right now for Northeastern. Um, but yeah, not only... Are we about to get another Jack Hughes into the league if he makes it? Um, but there is a potential where maybe like Montreal gets multiple first round picks and they we could have Kent Hughes, his father, drafting his son, um, which which I think is kind of a neat little thing. Although ultimately he's probably going to the Devils because just for the memes. 
of having two Jack Hughes there. But anyways, back on Kent Hughes, um, I, I, I think it, it's, it's interesting, you know, I think we talk a lot about how, uh, like, the, whenever a new GM gets hired or a new coach gets hired, it's always like a retread and things like that. So I find it interesting that the, the Canadians are doing a different approach to this, where they are taking a player agent. I, I don't know if he's the first player agent to be a GM uh, now, but he is also... Um, but yeah, I, I am curious to see how this all, this whole thing works. Like I would assume this, because he was an agent, this would mean that, and this is like a relatively new guy, this means that they're going on a rebuild, but at the same time, maybe like, because they have Scott Gordon there, maybe they aren't going to be going on a rebuild. So I don't know. It, it is definitely... Um, intriguing, just to say the least, just purely because he's a player agent or a former player agent. So a couple of things on this. Um, it's it's an interesting move because we rarely see bold moves where someone with hardly any background in a front office role mm-hmm. is being given the keys to not only an NHL franchise, but probably the most historic NHL franchise that everyone knows. And definitely in terms of Stanley Cup championships, the the winningest franchise in league history. Um, With a fan base that's probably the most passionate out of all of them. And in the past, we've seen Department of Player Safety gurus land front office case with NHL teams. I remember in recent memory, Brendan Shanahan landing a huge role with the Toronto Maple Leafs that uh, he's still part of now. Uh, Brian Burke, of course, was in a front office role. Then he became the Department of Player Safety head. But then he went back to the Vancouver Canucks to be the GM of that team. And then later Anaheim and Toronto and Calgary. He had executive roles with those teams. But before making that move, you know, he at least had some front office experience. And behind the bench, there was a brief time where Ivan Halenka coached the Penguins in the early 2000s. He spent most of his time in Europe prior to that. In my memory as a hockey fan, a player agent becoming a GM is insanity. What's also insanity is that we're talking about a guy that doesn't have an ounce of front office experience besides the five or six days he's been GM of the Canadians. Not even as an assistant GM, not as a scout, not a director of player personnel, none of that. Zero front office experience to his name prior to this decision. And that is why Jeff Gordon is helping with everyone else and everything else because um, you're looking at a guy that's never made an NHL trade on this side of the spectrum, never made NHL signings. Jeff Gordon is basically, I wouldn't call him the puppeteer, uh, the the puppet master, like controlling the puppet. It's not like uh, Ken Hughes is being controlled by Jeff Gordon and the Habs, so to speak, or like he's their mouthpiece or anything like that. He provides an outsider experience that I definitely think the Montreal Canadiens need, but he's not the ideal choice for an NHL general manager. So it's definitely an outside-the-box move in that regard. Um, Ken Hughes, prior to this, is known for getting the most bang for his players. Bang for the buck, so to speak. Mike Matheson, after a decent rookie season with Florida, gets... A massive eight-year extension with a cap of four point eight seven five million. Ken Hughes was his agent. Tip of the hat to him for that one. 
That 11-year deal with Vinny LeCavalier, Tampa Bay, 2008, that was Ken Hughes as well. And also, it was Ken Hughes convincing the Flyers, hey, Vinny LeCavalier still got some game. You know, for, forget the past couple of years, the regression and all that. He's still yeah. a good player. He's going to do some good work for you. And LeCavalier played five seasons on Broad Street with the Flyers. So good bit of convincing there by Ken Hughes. And while I also think that the the next story that we're going to talk about is more so to do with the situation that Edmonton was and currently is in, he also got Darnell Nurse that massive lengthy contract yeah. extension in Edmonton. And Ken Hughes uh, was his agent and helped get that done. But he is also player agents for, prior to this, Colin White, who got a pretty big deal with the Sens, same with Drake Batherson. Uh, Chris Letang, Bergeron, as we've mentioned before, Anthony Beauvillier, Anton Hudobin, Marco Scandella. You know that contract in St. Louis? Ken Hughes yeah. is his agent. Uh, and you also have uh, a lot of other guys, and youngsters like Alex Newhook in the picture, too. He represented all of those guys, and I think that speaks volumes because you're looking at a guy that a lot of players respect and trust. Yep. And when I think uh, when when you look at contract negotiations moving forward, that's going to be huge. Obviously, we don't know what this roster is going to look like, or what the plan is going to look like if we're going to see the letter being sent out to the diehard Habs fans. Um, if if that happens, is it going to be today or tomorrow? Is it going to be in the coming weeks or months? Is it going to be next year? Is it going to be in the off season? I'm not quite sure if they even send it out because maybe they feel there's still a chance they can win with this group. It remains to be seen. But this is where the hard work begins. Making the changes in the front office, that's one thing. You have the pieces in place that can make the decisions. Now you decide if Dominic Ducharme is still the option behind the bench, if the assistants like Alex Burrows and Luke Richardson are still the people to help turn things around for Montreal. You have to decide what happens with the roster, what the defense is going to look like, what the goaltending is going to look like, what your top six forwards are going to be, what the prospect system looks like. Because when I look at the Habs prospect system outside of Cole Caulfield and Ryan Paling and Caden Primo, I don't really know if there's anything that really excites me compared to some of the other prospect pools out there. So maybe they need to overhaul the prospect pool as well. So that kind of stuff is going to be evaluated over the coming weeks and months. And I think then we're going to have a clearer picture as to what this team's going to look like. So we'll talk about more of that when it happens. Um, But initially from this standpoint, I'm willing to give it a chance just because I think Ken Hughes provides a lot from the standpoint that we don't normally see the player negotiation side of it. And I think that will really appeal from a front office standpoint, because you're not just looking at a general manager that's concerned about a salary cap, concerned about the bottom line, concerned about getting the players with the with the right salary that gives the team a chance to win. You're looking at a guy that's been on the player side and has helped them get the best deal possible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I am wondering now that you listed all those like current players in the NHL, like I do wonder if like maybe I doubt like I, I'm not even gonna put this into the void, but I guess it's too late now. But, like, Patrice Bergeron, like, joins the Habs, or Abu Villiers joins the Habs, um, or any of, like, his player agents join because of, uh, they, you know, he was a former agent for them. 
um, I, I do wonder if they're like if they're gonna do that. But it does seem like because they also have Scott Gordon in the mix as well that they are planning on a rebuild. Where it's like Scott Gordon is a great a great a scout. So um, or he he drafted really well when he was the Rangers GM. So I do wonder if maybe it is a sign that they're going to start rebuilding. And as you said, that like. Montreal's farm team isn't exactly exciting ex- besides Cole Caulfield, Caden Gould, and um, and Caden Primo. So, I, yeah, I am curious to see um, how that all ends up. Um, but, yeah, it, it should be fun and, and interesting just to see how that goes. Um, and also, before it starts, uh, Patrice Bergeron was a... Uh, Nordiques fan growing up so and uh, so other than the fact that there's no way that that's going to happen that he's going to the Habs um, he didn't even grow up as a Habs fan despite growing um, up in the Quebec area so um, anyways uh, then our next topic is is a little bit more unfortunate news Um, so uh, this has been in the news uh, lately, but the ECHL team, um, I guess, uh, is uh, Jordan, Jordan Subban's not on the Jacksonville Iceman. I think he's on another No, so uh, the Jacksonville Iceman was Jordan Subban's opponent okay. uh, Saturday night um, when uh, Subban but, and the South Carolina Stingrays got it, got were it, playing okay. Jacksonville. I got, I got it from here then. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so there was a game from the Jacksonville and uh, the Carolina Stingray. Um, or I just messed that up again. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, the, the, there was a, a little bit of an incident towards the, um, in the third quarter, a third period, and uh, the, um, and uh, now I'm blanking on the guy's name, but. D- D- Jacob Panetta. Jacob Panetta. Uh, got in a fight with Jordan Subban, and then he started to mimic a mon- a monkey um, gesture at him, um, and uh, yeah, and, and rightfully that got that upset everyone. Uh, Jordan Subban and a whole brawl ensued as well. Um, if you want to look at more, there's like clips on it online of of the incident that happened. Um, P.K. Subban, Jordan Subban's brother, of course, uh, went on Twitter and just said that, like, this is an intolerable or this is just, like, um, this is crazy that this happened, like, you know, that uh, it's an injustice in the world and um, all that stuff. I'm paraphrasing here. I, I, I'll, I'll get to it um, in a second. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, then all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but... Um, but everyone was covering this because PK uh, put it out there. Um, and yeah, I don't know. And uh, so now uh, Jacob Panetta uh, apologized, um, but, uh, but he's, he's banned from the Jacksonville team or he's cut from the Jacksonville team. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I, I think like just if you want to send a message to um, not just the ECHL, but like the AHL, the CHL, the NHL, like just like make sure this guy is like 
no, can no longer play professional hockey. Um, I, I think that's that's the big takeaway here because I saw from Tara Sloan that there's like this silence, the code of silence uh, among players in the ECHL and AHL that like um, where like you know people are saying racist things in on the ice. And they just, you know, and I feel like any, like, that stuff should just be cut out entirely. Because then, um, hopefully it's not um, happening in the NHL. But if it does happen in the NHL, we're, we're talking about something that, like, you know, going back to, like, the Kyle Beach stuff. Like, this, this is, like, on that same scale. Like, oh my god, like, we have a bunch of racist players in the NHL or just in the system it's already bad enough so it's just um it's unfortunate but yeah at the same time it's like uh, it seems like everyone is activating up and uh, at least on twitter and uh and saying that this is um this is just not okay so uh i will uh, outline two sides of the story here. We'll start with the first one, which is the most obvious. Um, Jacob Panetta's hockey career is not in the best shape possible, and rightfully so. Um, for, for starters, the, the incident in question, Panetta went on to describe the gesture that he made as a tough guy bodybuilder-like gesture. Yeah. And he has done this in previous scrums to non-racialized players. Keyword being non-racialized. Uh, he did send out an apology on Twitter after the game where he defended the action, but also acknowledged that it was perceived and can be perceived as harmful and racist. And for that especially, he is very sorry. He swears that he is not a racist. He insists it was not how he was raised growing up. And at the same time, he says he needs to learn from this and promises that he will. Now, P.K. Subban, as we all know, is a very passionate dude. He's a guy that sticks up for his teammates, sticks up for his family, very vocal about societal issues. He had the Blue Line Buddies program during his days in Nashville, which I have deep respect for. Um, and I would consider P.K. Subban to be a solid community guy. Yep. And I've seen a lot of tweets from interviews that he's had with Devils Media about this particular incident. Pretty powerful stuff. You should definitely look at the transcripts provided by the likes of Corey Masizic and Amanda Stein. Uh, one of the tweets that he made after the fact was, quote, opinion, this isn't a mistake. We all know what's okay and what's not. This happens a lot and it never gets exposed in the lower leagues. That is a very good point. He also um, outlines that this stuff keeps happening. And we can look at one incident and talk about it all we want, but tomorrow there may be another one. And that's also very true. And it's the fact is it's 2022 and we're still talking about stuff like this. Like I hate talking about stories like this. It feels like five, six, seven or eight times yeah. we've talked about a story that just sickens us to our core and, and we want it to stop. And it, heck for all we know, we hope it's the last one, but it never seems to be. Mm. So, we, we need to really talk and think about this stuff. And for a bodybuilding type of gesture, if it can be perceived as racist, we need to stop for a few seconds 
before we act, before we say anything and just say, even if what I'm about to say may not be racist, can be perceived as racism. And if it's better to not say it or not do it, then just don't. Yeah. It's it's not worth the social media backlash potentially that you could receive. It's a tough situation for uh, Jacob Panetta and his family. And uh, Carl Subban, I don't know if you've heard, uh, PK Jordan and uh, Malcolm's dad was actually uh, chatting on uh, national radio programs today about the incident. And he has sympathy for the Panetta family. The, Jacob is actually going to be turning 26 years old this week. Yeah. And this was his first full season with the Iceman. He had played four years of NCAA hockey before this uh, first full season with the Iceman, which has come to an abrupt end, obviously. Uh, and then before that, he played three years with the Ontario Junior Hockey League, a, a league below the OHL level, I might add. And... Um, and 17 points in 31 games uh, was statistically his best season uh, to, in, a, in a league two leagues below the NHL level. So this is a guy that's turning 26 years old, is probably at this stage of his career, it's the point where you're looking at the clock and it's slowly ticking away. You're running out of chances to make a professional hockey impact, or maybe you're just playing for the love of the game and playing for as long as you want. That's, and and all of that being considered, it, it's it's a tough situation for Jacob Panetta. Again, on the other side of the coin, it's even tougher for guys like Jordan Subban who have dealt with this probably before, not the first time. And it, it's just a societal issue that just doesn't belong at not not just to mention in sport, but in life. Nobody should have to deal with that kind of garbage it's 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 not fun it's it's not fair nobody deserves that kind of grief so i i totally get the the passionate defense of his brother in this situation but i i want to address this tweet by pk subin because I think this quote in particular is very reactionary and might be a bit too far. And here's the tweet. This is a few hours after the incident, as around the time it's first going viral. So the tweet goes from PK Subban. Now the hockey world knows your true colors, your hometown of Belleville knows, your family knows, your yep. friends know you're a fraud. And in another tweet, it says that he shouldn't be so quick to delete his Twitter or Instagram accounts because he will probably be able to play hockey again. So first of all, does P.K. Subban know Jacob Panetta? No. Does he know what type of a guy Jacob Panetta is? Does he know what he's about? Does he know the Panetta family? I Honestly, I'm not so sure we know that side of the story, the ties they asked the Panetta family. So if he doesn't really know them, I don't understand why he would tweet that. And in his defense... I get that he's angry and his blood is probably boiling from watching that video because it's, like I said, it's about, at that point, it's a few hours old. But he doesn't have a front row seat leading, uh, leading up to that event. I don't know if he hears the players that are mic'd up. From what I heard, Panetta wants to take part in the ECHL investigation about this, and he has apologized. And maybe he was told to take down his social media accounts for for whatever reason. All I'm saying is... While this action is wrong, and it's a very regrettable action, and a lot of people will say it deserves a consequence, 
I think we should allow Jacob Panetta to tell his side of the story before the hockey world just puts him on full blast. Yeah. We, we need to hear his side of the story as well. I will I will say that knowing that context that like he does it to everyone and you know, and then I guess he has and I, I did know that he apologized and stuff like that, but I don't know. I think at the same time it feels like um it could like it's just like still like over the line, um still. So I, I I'm I, I know what you're saying that like maybe I was a little bit harsh at on uh, just a few minutes ago, but but yeah, yeah I, we're, and we're both on the same page yeah. that you shouldn't be doing that. Like that's yeah. Uh, I, I I still don't. I feel very uneasy watching that. Yeah, but I at guess. The same time. Yeah. At the same time, all I'm saying is give the kid a chance to share fair. his side of the story because we only that, got one side. That's really fair too, and I I guess I you know I I think I'm more concerned about just that, like, that. Like I'm not surprised that this happened. Um, like it's it, like this is just how society is going. That you know there are a lot of racists out here in America, so it's like it's not surprising that someone would do that. Like even like even still like not knowing that context. Um, so and and then yeah, in defense to PK Subban. Like, yeah, he didn't know. Yeah, sure, he didn't know the Panetta family. He doesn't know him as a person um, and all that stuff. But that doesn't mean that he, like, he uh, he doesn't have any right to get angry at him. Uh, he does. Right. So so I, I yeah. think it's just, like, an unfortunate thing where maybe it was just taken out of context and we didn't know the context, but that's still not a good excuse for what Jacob Panetta did. Um, I also yeah, wanted to note that um, because, like, it, it speaks to a, la- a bigger issue in the sport of hockey that, like, yeah. that this could happen even though, you know, like, yeah, I know that the person apologized and it was just a mis- misstrewed message that was sent there. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, uh, you know, I think it's just, like, the uh, hockey in general, not just the NHL and the ECHL, but every hockey league needs to be better at this type of stuff so that like, it just like, it's not even close to what happened uh, now, or like we won't even be even close to a situation like this or anything like that. So yeah, there's that. Um, also, I, I do want to mention that this was like a day after uh, the Bruins retired Willie O'Ree's number. Uh, Willie yeah. O'Ree, Willie O'Ree uh, retired. Uh, was the if you don't guys don't know, he was the first Black NHL player um, who was uh, the Boston Bruins. Um, he played for the Boston Bruins for a few years, but um, <clears throat> yeah, he wore number twenty two. And um, but yeah, it was just like it's strange that like this incident happened a week, like a almost a, I think it was a day after. The Willie O'Ree stuff. So I think um, it was two days because what what yeah. day was the retirement ceremony for uh, Willie O'Ree? That was Thursday, right? Well, what was interesting is because I was looking at PK Subban's Twitter, and then uh, because uh, PK Subban was actually one of the guys who um, raised uh, his jersey um, up mm. because the Devils were playing the Bruins. So that was January eighteenth. Uh, the this happened on the twenty second. So four days later, 
Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, still. Um, and you know, I I, I think it's just more like a, just a you know, it's just more of like, well, what is the, um, it's just like hockey just needs to figure like, figure out this whole diversity thing. It's just a bad look. I know it was misconstrued, but it's still just a bad look overall. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole point of hockey is for everyone yeah. and being an inclusive sport. It's kind of been a tone deaf after a little bit when right. you still see these incidents happening. And it's just like, they're not stopping. Yep. Like, uh, right. you, you know, where, where's the end game here? Right. Well, it's a good segue because I forgot to mention this when we were talking about Kent Hughes. But in terms of inclusiveness, uh, the Vancouver Canucks uh, hired an assistant general manager and she's a woman. Uh, it's Emily Castanguay. Um, she uh, she was a, another player agent. Uh, she uh, she was uh, Lafreniere's um, agent as well. So um, so yeah, it's just uh, I guess there there is some progress being made, um, and that this just happened. The Canucks uh, did that, so good for you her. Take the good with the bad. Yeah, the for the sure, bad. for sure. And you learn from the bad. That's the key yeah. point: is you learn from the bad. Right, right, right. Um, and then lastly, before we get to the main topic, uh, a lot of stuff to get to, I guess. Uh, Clark Gillies, uh, unfortunately, he died. Uh, he was a part of those Islanders dynasty teams in the 80s. Um, I think he was, was he on Mike Bossy's line? He must have been. Um, but yeah, he was a Hall of Famer. Um, he, uh, he won four cups, uh, two times All-Stars, according to Hockey Reference here, which is pretty cool. Um, and he had 697 points in 958 games. Um, of course, uh, neither Steve or I, he was before Steve or I's time, but I, I, I think I knew that name before. So, um, so yeah, I guess it's always sad whenever you hear like, oh, these, these hockey guys, they are gone, but especially for a guy who played in the 80s um and he was he died when he was 67 years old so um and i i also was looking here he went fourth overall in the 1974 draft so uh mm-hmm. so i guess he had a high pedigree as well so yeah he, uh, he retired after 14 seasons because um lower body wasn't in the best shape um so after a couple of years with buffalo with his numbers declining he decided uh, to call it a career but um, he could have played a lot longer uh, for 14 years, I guess, if, uh, if he wanted to. And uh, most of that time, of course, was spent with the Islanders. And uh, in 2002, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame for his historic career. And in December of 96, his number nine was permanently retired at Nassau Coliseum by the Islanders franchise. When you think of people associated with the Islanders dynasty in the 1980s, Obviously, you think of Denny Potvin, you think of Billy Smith, you think of Bobby Nystrom, who scored that goal against the Flyers in 1980 to win the Stanley Cup. You think of John Tonelli. Um, you think of Mike Bossy, of course. You also remember a guy by the name of Clark Gillies. And believe it or not, Clark Gillies was the captain before that Islanders dynasty started to take shape. Denny Potvin was the captain um, around the time where the Islanders became that unstoppable object. But uh, for a couple of seasons, Clark Gillies was the captain of that team. And before anyone in the hockey world knew his name, he was actually a high school quarterback in Moose Jaw, where he was from, 
And he also played baseball so well that he was signed by the Houston Astros to play on their Appalachian League farm team. So um, also pretty good at some other sports. Um, what is interesting is that he was a very good community guy, a very talented hockey player. He had, um, I think, in six of 12 NHL seasons that uh, he played with the Islanders, I want to say. Or it, was, it was six of 14 or six of 12 with the Islanders. But in six of those 12 seasons, he got at least 33 goals. And he never hit 100 penalty minutes in a season. His career high was 99, despite the label of him being a power forward and being a very tough guy to play against. And part of the reason why he was a tough guy to play against is he would do everything possible in his power to give his team a bet, uh, the best chance to win. Um, obviously, his size helped with that, weighing 220 pounds, standing six foot three tall. He had 68 fighting majors, but he never did it because he wanted to fight. He only did out of necessity if it was to protect his team. He only got four misconducts his entire career, Brett, which is That's which crazy. is something to keep in mind. Especially in and the, the 80s. And the 1980 series where he had a big impact against the Bruins, he actually learned to fight against left-handed fighters, partially because... He knew he was going up against Terry O'Reilly, and he would have been a tough guy to go up against. So he learned to fight left-handed, even though he hated it, because it's just like, if we're going to beat the Bruins, I need to fight left-handed because Terry O'Reilly's left-handed. So he was, the, he was the type of guy that knew what it took to win and do whatever he possibly could to win. And then when you look at um, all of the stuff that he's done in the community, the Clark Gillies Foundation... Uh, a nonprofit corporation and all the good work that um, he's done. There's a lot of uh, information on that on NHL.com on one of their stories that he did after his passing. That really sticks out to me as well. And also what sticks out to me as well is when you talk about the current Islanders players and coaching staff members like Barry Trotz and Anders Lee and Brock Nelson and Matt Martin in particular, Matt Martin cited, um, Clark Gillies as a type of player that he wanted to be. He was just such a key heart and soul member of this franchise. Um, he's never going to be forgotten by by this team, by this city. Uh, so I, I would I would imagine this probably th this would probably be similar to God forbid Daniel Alfredson passing away. Yeah. Like just just a really likable guy that people really associate with this team. So uh, our condolences to Clark Gillies, uh, the family, and and everyone who knew him because I'm I'm sure they're grieving pretty hard right now. Yeah, of course. Um, all right, we're gonna start off with the. Um, uh, so so I think um, on that note, it's it's hard to segue when someone dies like that, but. Um, on that note, uh, this is an episode that we, or topic that we've been meaning to do for quite a while, but it's just like other things have come up or we find a, a more interesting story or something like that. So, uh, but now that the uh, taxi squad is uh, back into the NHL, um, there are quite a few players who are making some noise in the AHL. Um, and, you know, we're just wondering, like, we just wanted to showcase them and, and make some note of, like, should, uh, like uh, well, a lot of these guys are already in the league. 
or at least the first couple. Um, but um, but yeah, I guess the question is, is like, should they stay on the roster uh, for the rest of the season, um, or should they just stay in the AHL, or I guess just be on the taxi squad? Uh, so the first, so I uh, we have uh, two groups of teammates here, um, or we have a couple of teammates that I wanted to mention. But the first one I wanted to mention was uh, Matt Boldy and Marco Rossi. Uh, Matt Boldy was a 2019 uh, first round pick, uh, 12th overall, and uh, Marco Rossi was a 2020 uh, first round pick. Um, he went ninth overall. Um, for for some reason, I I guess uh, Matt Boldy uh, can't be sent down, or like he's not waiver exempt for some reason. So he is actually going to be on the taxi squad. But when he was playing in the AHL, he uh, he had ten points in ten games, um, and and that's that's uh, pretty cool. Um, or like, you know, I think that was his first, uh, season in the league. So, so that's like, that's pretty good. Obviously, um, he has experience before when he played for BC, um, the, uh, last year or no, sorry. He, uh, not last year he played for, well, he played for BC last year. He had 31 points in 22 games. Then he, uh, signs an entry level contract. Um, and plays for the Iowa Wild for a little bit, and he has 18 points in 14 games. Um, and he also played in the World Championships where he had seven points in seven games. Um, so now he, uh, now that he's on the Minnesota Wild for quite a bit, he has four points in six games actually. So that's not too bad. Um, and you know, I, I think it's it's kind of interesting. Like, yeah, they. They do have uh, left wingers like, of course, Kaprizov and Fiala, um, but but yeah, I think Matt Boldy could make a difference um, in this, like like just as a depth guy. Like even like even if he's going to waste away on the third line, I I think that's still good for good deployment for um, for Boldy. Um, to have because I, I think he's like he's too good for the AHL so I, I, I can see him like uh, like just getting in those like games of the NHL that, that can only help him so far um, and you know I'm, yeah the Wild are a good team but um, but I, I don't like I think the Wild have so many prospects that and, and Boldy's going to be one of the big prospects for them uh, for years to come so that I, I think it is good to get him some NHL experience um, before he's ready. So, I uh, yeah, I, I am curious what they do um, once he reaches that nine game mark. Um, but, but yeah, so far he's been pretty good. Yeah, so I'm not sure if you recall, Brett, but uh, he was actually hurt in an exhibition game this year, uh, which sucked at the time because – Heading into that point at the start of training camp, he was looking very, very good. And the expectation was that um, the recovery time was going to be four to six weeks. Actually, had a fractured left ankle, which uh, sounds pretty bad. Yep. Uh, but uh, in the short spin, he has been an AHLer this year. Ten points in ten games for an 18-year-old for a 20-year-old is still pretty good. And he had those 18 points in 14 games last year with three power play goals 
Um, and a, a, a pretty decent shooting percentage. 11.5 is pretty good uh, last year in 14 games. And he was averaging uh, 3.7 shots per game. So the shots per game was also good. And in a season that was far from ideal, he performed pretty well. And um, also closed out that year with a six-game point streak. So heading into this year, he was already looking pretty good. He had a bit of experience in the AHL. Um, he had a good amount of confidence going into this year. Um, if you look at uh, his performance this year, the one thing that hasn't been there this year is the consistency. Uh, his first game, he had two goals, one assist, three points, and three shots. One goal on five shots his second game of the AHL this year. Um, and then uh, he had a pair of assists in game three. While he didn't have anything in terms of points or goals uh, in his fourth game, he did finish that game with nine shots. But after that three-game point streak to start the year, he is pointless in four of seven. And even then, ten points in ten games looks pretty good, but the consistency factor is a bit lacking there. The one thing that impresses me about his NHL resume is that he has four points in six games, two of them goals, both of them game winners, as a matter of fact. His average ice time across all situations is 16.52, which is pretty good for a rookie. I've seen other rookies where it's 13 to 14 minutes a game that gradually bring him in. Uh, his power play ice time per game, 2.17. Again, for a rookie, that's still pretty good. It's also pretty good when you consider his most consistent line mate has been Marcus Foligno, who, to his credit, decent season, but is he a terrific hockey player that's a point-per-game pace? Not really. He's a good, solid bottom six guy, but that's about it. A guy like Adam Beckman in the, in the AHL, for example, is fifth overall with 107 shots, but only seven goals to his name. Boldy's percentage in terms of shooting is a far bigger difference as to why he is currently up in the big time right now and Beckman is still down in the minors because the points per game and the goals per game are, are down in Beckman's case. I would say he's flip-flopping between the taxi squad and the NHL at this point. Um, I do think he could benefit from time in the AHL to work on the consistency part of his scoring. But given the fact that he's still getting chances to succeed in all situations and on the power play, I don't think Minnesota's ready to make that call to send him down. I think they yeah. see something in this guy that are just like, eh, we, we haven't seen enough of this kid yet. We should keep him up a bit more. Yeah, I've, I just looked at his game logs. The last three games he's had 17 minutes of ice time or more. Um, he had 18 minutes the last game. So, um, so yeah, I, I think... Like it, it, that kind of shows that they like this kid, and uh, they're ready to see more of it. Which is interesting too, because the Wild are you know tr vying for a playoff spot um, in the Central Division. So you would think like they they would try not to rush this guy, but yeah, so far I guess they're liking what he, what they're seeing out of him, and and yeah, so far it's working. But but yeah, I guess it does have a potential, of course, to. Um, to, to like blow up in their face but I guess if that happens then they can just put him on the taxi squad or somehow just move him down um, okay um, also uh, of note which is interesting Marco Rossi 
Um, he uh, he played. Uh, yeah, he was the 2020 um, uh, Wild draft pick, and he went ninth overall. Um, and um, and yeah, so he so he played last year. He had COVID for most of the year, and he was affected long term by it. And we were all curious to see like how would he play um, after COVID. Um, like how much did it really affect him and so far it seems like it hasn't affected him all that much um, in the AHL he he's played in 27 games and he has 27 points in those games um, he was called up to Minnesota um, and uh, but he only played in two games uh, he didn't get any points there but you know I, I think the the thing that's interesting with Marco Rossi is that he is a center um, and the Wild, like, yeah, Ryan Hartman, he's been doing pretty well. Uh, Joel Eriksson um, he's okay. Um, but, like, their centers on the third and fourth line are Frederick Goudreau and Nico Sturm. So, like, I, I think at this point, it's like, if you're going to send Matthew Boldy up, like, Marco Rossi is supposed to be even better than Boldy. So why not just bring Marco Rossi up if you're if you're doing the same with Boldy? Uh, so that part I don't necessarily understand, um, but um, but yeah, at the same time I guess it is good that you you know they're taking his time with him, um, but it does seem like he, he is a point per game in the AHL as a twenty year old. So that's like that's obviously pretty good still. So I, I am curious why they haven't sent him up. But, you know, I guess it's, 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 uh, it's tough to really tell that maybe it is good for him development-wise since he missed the whole year last year. Yeah, I think the fact that he missed all of last season is a big reason why. And uh, the big reason why is because last year he was diagnosed with myocarditis, or myocarditis, I should say. And he also battled COVID. Um, so when you miss an entire season and you're trying to get your strength up, you're trying to get your conditioning up just to get to game speed is a challenge there. And now all of a sudden you have to be that point per game player that you were. And then some in the OHL, it's like, man, like it's been 2021 has been a very tough year. It's, it's, it it just needs to be canceled (laughs) if you're, if you're Margot Rossi, because it hasn't been easy for him. Um, but there's a lot of good numbers that showcase his ability to be an NHL player to watch. And in four to five years, I definitely think Marco Rossi can be an all-star talent if he keeps this up. Um, so the fact that he didn't play any hockey last year, if I'm, if I'm the wild and I want to monitor Rossi's development, give him every single chance to get top line minutes to get consistent playing time. And just watch him go for an entire season. Don't let him stop unless, of course, he can't play because of health reasons. You give him every single chance possible, and you just keep him in a consistent environment where he can just work on his game and refine his craft. Because unlike Matthew Boldy, who had a solid NCAA season and a solid AHL season in the short time that he played last year, Mark Rossi didn't have any of that because he wasn't playing. Right. He wasn't healthy enough to play. So... Yeah. Uh, the the fact that he lost the year of the development is is the big deal breaker for me there. 
Uh, he was given a lot of credit for his two-way style during his days with the OHL's Ottawa 67s. If you look at the Iowa power play this year, they're 17th out of 31 teams, but they've been given the six most chances, and they've scored 26 power play goals, which is 12th in the league. Um, and if you look at their penalty kill, they're, they're ranked third despite having the 10th most uh, penalty kill attempts. They've given up the fourth fewest power play goals against. And uh, I don't know how much of that is a resemblance of Marco Rossi and the quality of hockey that he's played on the two-way level, but I'm sure it's helped when you consider uh, his track record with the 67s there. Um, as a team, though, they're 15, 16, and 4 the Owl Wild, which is uh, 34 points in 35 games, 37 games remaining. They could probably use Rossi to be a part of that uh, that playoff race, so maybe that could also uh, factor into that. He's first in team scoring right now, fifth amongst AHL rookies, 26 across the entire league at the moment. Um, his shots per game is a bit lower than Matthew Boldy's. It's 2.85 per game, but 77 shots across those 27 games. He also has three power play goals um, on top of the nine that he has. Uh, the consistent scoring, this is the key part that I like about Marco Rossi's game. His consistent scoring in the NHL, or in, in the AHL, sorry, has been phenomenal. The, he, he's, he's displaying the type of scoring that he did with Ottawa, where, okay, he goes pointless in one game, then he gets a nine-game point streak. Right. Then he uh, gets, uh, then he gets uh, cold and goes for no points in a three-game slump. Then he gets an eight-game point streak, and he's and he's back. And in the midst of those point streaks, you see him get, I don't know, two points a game or three points a game or a two-assist game or a three-assist game. They just come in bunches for Marco Rossi. Um, and I, I think if, if I'm Minnesota, again, the best thing for Marco Rossi's development is just to put him in one setting. And the one thing that I saw – in the NHL with Matthew Boldy that I didn't see in the NHL with Marco Rossi was that the ice time was a bit on the downward side. And I think part of the reason is because he's a center. Uh, in his first game, he averaged 16-19. And in his second game, he averaged 14-51. And those are the only two games that he's played. No points uh, to his name in the NHL just yet. So um, I think it's a bit of a different story, like you said, Brett, because Marco Rossi's a center and he's missed uh, the the year of development that Matthew Boldy had last year. I think those are the two big factors there. So I think, for the most part, he's an AHLer for now, but it, it won't be the case for long because he'll be back stronger than ever next year, even stronger than he is now. And uh, I think next year is where you potentially get to see a noticeable amount of NHL playing time for this kid. Yeah, I guess that's a that's a fair point. I mean, yeah, I think the fact that he took off the whole last year, but at the same time, it does feel like he's killing it in the AHL. So it seems like maybe they should give him a chance um, in the NHL because he's like too good for the AHL. But yeah, maybe maybe it's just like they want to make sure that he's okay and and all that stuff. So I, I guess I can understand it from that angle. Um, also, I think he's younger than Matt Boldy, so maybe that also yeah. has a play. He's with not going to be 21 until September. Right, right. So, so yeah. He's still going to be 20 heading into the offseason. Yeah, so that's pretty. That's still pretty young. Um, all right, the next guy that we have, speaking of injuries, 
uh, Scott Perunovich. Um, so what was interesting, he's another guy who missed most, of, I think he missed all of last year as well uh, because he had sh- shoulder surgery. Um, but then, um, so yeah, so he missed a whole year of development. Um, but then he returned this year um, and he had, um, he ended up, he ended up having 20 points in 12 games. Now keep in mind, this guy is a defenseman. Um, and as we talked about with, uh, Kale McCarr and Quinn Hughes, uh, that's pretty good for a defenseman. I mean, it is good even if he was a forward. Uh, so, so that's like, that like speaks out to you. Um, if you go to the AHL site, um, and you know, you look at their stats, they have like a, you can categorize people by points per game. Um, Owen Tippett has the, has two points per game. He's, but to be fair, he's only played two games. Um, but the next on this list is Scott Perunovich, um, and he has 1.67 points per game. Um, and he played, so 20 points in 12 games. Um, but here's the thing is that, yeah, because he missed a year, I do wonder if maybe he's going to stay down in the AHL for another year. That, that I could definitely see that being possible. Um, I'm watching simultaneously watching the Ducks-Bruins game, and the Ducks just scored. Um fun um anyways was it Trevor Zegers at least no no um yeah (laughs) I know I I Zegers did get an assist so I uh, yeah Zegers is the only one who can score but oh (laughs) the only reason why you watch yeah yeah exactly (laughs) oh no I I think actually when I was looking around I think Zegers like he had a penalty and this was a shorthanded goal which is, which is <laughs> of course, Tuka Rask lets in an easy one in. Anyways, I'm, I, I, I feel like I don't think people would be interested in, in me getting angry at my Bruins. They, they, they can right. watch the highlights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they can watch the highlights, exactly. Anyways, going back to this, Scott Perunovich, um, I, I guess just because he did take off the year, it's kind of like what we were saying with Marco Rossi. Maybe it does make sense to just put him back in the AHL. Um, and the other reason is maybe because the, um, you know, the Blues are pretty good on defense um, right now. They have Tory Krug finally living up to his potential or what they signed him up for. Uh, Justin Fox there as well and Colton Pareko. Um, yeah, they have Nico Mercola and Marco Scandella and Robert Pertuzzo, but... I don't know. I, I think they're in good hands um, in St. Louis that I don't necessarily think they need to call him up. Right now, though, he is um, he is day-to-day with a lower body injury, I think. Uh, but he might return, um, I guess, maybe even tonight. Um, so, so you'll see if he, if he made the... if he uh, played tonight or not. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, I, I think there is... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting case because I guess he, he has, when he has played for the Blues, he's played, uh, he had six points in 19 games, but that's with 15 minutes of ice time. So that's pretty good. But I do wonder if maybe it's like, like, you know, they should just put him in the AHL kind of like what, you know, Marco, if Marco, they, they should maybe do the same philosophy as they're doing with Marco Rossi as the uh, wild are doing with Marco Rossi 
So, um, this is probably the part where I'm going to drive you crazy and take an opposite angle to your uh -huh. argument. Um, so, first of all, this guy sits third in rookie scoring by defenseman in the AHL. And the two guys who are ahead of him have recorded the following stat lines. Uh, 23 points in 26 games and 21 points in 28 games. As you mentioned, Brett, Scott Perunovic has 20 points in 12 games, yeah. and he hasn't played since November 13th. Right. That's so the right. fact that he's still uh, that he's still 11th in defensive points overall is still pretty damn good. Yep. Considering uh, the fact he's only played 12 games, uh, it should also be noted that he hasn't gone pointless in that span either, which means in his AHL career, he's on a 12-game point streak without a single pointless game. And out of those 12 games, he's recorded multi-assist games six times, a pair of three-assist games included in that. And while he's only shot the puck 24 times, in the games where he has failed to record at least one assist, he scored twice on three shots. <laughs> so even when he doesn't get an assist, he can score goals. Uh, so that's how good he's been. Now, in terms of special teams for the Springfield Falcons, their power play ranks fourth. Uh, in percentage at 23%. Their 152 chances ranked fourth. Their 35 power play goals scored ranked second. Uh, the one knock is they have given up the most shorthanded goals with 10. Their penalty kill is 28th out of 31, way below 80%. Uh, they have uh, been shorthanded the fifth most times with 143. They've given up the second most power play goals against with 34. Um, the good news is they have scored seven shorthanded goals themselves, so that sort of negates the ten shorthanded goals they've given up. Now, I'm not putting out these numbers to, to really suggest anything about Perunovic's defensive abilities because it's really hard to evaluate that when he hasn't played since November 13th. Right. So that's two full months, basically, since his last AHL game. Now, during that time, he has played in 19... NHL games, and he's got six assists, zero goals. His ice time, though, 15.27 per game, awfully low for a defenseman, but for a rookie, I guess that's right around where they typically see. Uh, e even the best defenseman, like, if, if they get 20 minutes per game, that's like cream of the crop rookie defenseman right there. So 15.27 doesn't really shock me. On the plus side... He's been trusted a bit on the power play. He's averaged two minutes and two seconds of power play time per game as an NHLer so far this season. But he has been paired with four different defensemen already. He's spent time with Justin Falk. He spent time with Robert Bortuzzo. He spent time with Marco Scandella. And he spent time with Colton Pareko. And um, as you mentioned, Brad, currently nursing an injury day-to-day -day for the time being. Only one point in his past 10 games. So he's going through... A bit of a scoring slump and you could argue that yeah maybe some time in the minors would help him boost his confidence would it help his development though this this case i would argue he's too good for the nhl and maybe NHL. the nhl is where he should be and this is why i'm saying this as the salary cap crunch continues to hit the blues because it's not going to stop anytime soon you are going to hope that scott perudovich is ready for the nhl because at some point, you are going to need this guy to ball out yeah. and play good hockey for you. So I think now would be the time to see where his strengths and weaknesses are and try to build on those 
And I think the best way for him to do that is similar to Matthew Boldy, be on the taxi squad slash get him in games when you can yep. and try to refine his game that way. Because while it would be nice to see him rack up points in the AHL, I'm not sure development-wise what that's going to do. He's already proven enough as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned in the American League. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point, I guess. Um, yeah, the other thing to note is that Scott Perunovic is 23 years old, whereas Marco Rossi is not even 20 years old. So so maybe that also... Yeah, I, I can see your point just because uh, Perunovic is a bit older too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so maybe that has something to do with it as well. Um, all right, uh, we go back to a 20-year-old uh, in... Uh, uh, this was actually a guy who was ju- picked one pick ahead. One, one, one pick before Rossi. Yeah, before Rossi. And this was uh, killed in the um, in the draft at the time. And I guess, you know, the verdict isn't out just yet. But, um, but yeah, he is looking. Jack Quinn has been looking pretty good um, in the AHL. And he has played in the NHL for two games. Uh, but, yeah, he has uh, 35 points in 24 games for the Rochester Americans. That puts him eighth in the AHL. Um, and then he gets called up to uh, the NHL. Um, and then he has a goal and uh, an assist. I don't I don't think that they were... Um, let me look here. I don't think... Okay, they were in the same game, um, which, was, which is pretty uh, cool. Um, yeah, yeah, but what's funny is he had 13 minutes of ice time in that game against Dallas, but his first game he had 16 minutes of ice time. So it's like, I am curious to see how they, like, what they're doing with that standpoint. We're about to talk about Peyton Krebs in a second, but I will say that because, like, the Minnesota Wild and the St. Louis Blues are vying for a playoff spot, and that's different than the Buffalo Sabres are doing because they're, you know, they're not good. Um, and they don't necessarily need him to be good right now. But at the same time, they, you know, you can see what you have in Jack Quinn because, like, these games are more or less meaningless to them. And, um, you know, it's just might as well see what he has and give him some NHL experience to see what what can happen with with this guy um yeah I I I don't think I mind necessarily having Jack Quinn on here because it's like you don't have anything to lose really at this point so um I'm I'm a bit mixed on this one uh it should also be noted by the way he's dealing with a lower body injury and is expected to miss four weeks so bad news for Jack Quinn who last year he had uh some bright moments in the AHL but um he missed significant time with an injury as well last season so um it it's unfortunate that um just just when he's getting hot and finding his game and it looks like nothing can go wrong. He suffers an injury, and it's right. just taking a back seat for a little bit. Uh, now, the Compton native, uh, in his rookie AHL season, has had a positive impact with his team. Uh, when you look at Rochester in terms of special teams, they're second in the AHL with a 26.4% uh, success rate. They're 12th in power play chances with 129, and yet they still have the second-best percentage. Largely because they scored 34 times on the power play. That's the third most. 
and they've only given up five shorthanded goals against. Um, that's only one side of their offense, but it just goes to show you um, what a good power play will do to a hockey team. The only other team that's given up more goals than the Americans have is the San Jose Barracuda, who have 131 goals against. The Americans have given up 130. But the good news is for Rochester, they are 20-12-3 on the season because of the scoring that they have across various fronts and the fact uh, that collectively as a team, they have 132 goals in 35 games. That is an average of a whopping 3.77 goals scored per game. The anti-Sabres, as I would call it. The Sabres can't score. The Rochester Americans have no problem doing that. Uh, So so that's that's what's going well for, uh, for this team. Now, Michael Mersch, um, his stat line, 18 goals, 18 assists, 36 points in 35 games. That leaves the team in scoring also good enough for a spot in the AHL's top 10 scores. Jack Quinn, for the time being, I believe is ranked eighth in league scoring with a stat line of 18 goals, 17 assists, 35 points. He also has 80 shots on goal, six goals on the power play, a shorthanded goal, and four game winners. Plus minus, I would say, out of that bunch is the biggest improvement. Sure, it's a minus six in 24 games, but you should also keep in mind that he had two goals, nine points, and 15 games last year and was a minus 14. Minus 14 in 15 games is not great. Minus six in 24 games, not the best of the bunch, but definitely on the right track. Um what I've also liked about Jack Wayne's game is that he's scoring points in bunches, similar to Marco Rossi. He, um, he had two multi-point games all of last year in the AHL. Uh, he had that many after his third AHL game this season. Um, uh, on seven occasions this year, he's taken at least five shots per game. So the shots per game's uh, where it needs to be. Um, his shooting percentage was 8% last year. It's 225 this year. That big of an improvement in a single campaign is very, very noticeable. Uh, and uh, in January, in the month of January, he's actually posted um, two four-point games. Uh, so the offensive explosion hasn't uh, died off like Matthew Boldy's did. It's still going. Um, to your point about where he fits in, maybe we could see another NHL stint once the trade deadline has come and gone because there are some serviceable parts of the Sabres offense that could be sold for futures. Um, so I think towards, I would say, late March, early April, we could see a bit of Jack Quinn in the NHL again. But I would give him as much time in the AHL as possible, not because he's not playing well enough to play NHL hockey, mostly because... And I can't emphasize this enough. The Sabres need to develop their prospects properly. And part of developing your prospects properly is giving them chances to succeed. Like I said with the Boldy and Rossi, giving them regular chances to succeed, putting them in the best positions to succeed, giving them top power play minutes, giving them top minutes in all situations, just letting them develop naturally. And it's easier to do that when, I don't know, your team is winning games, which Buffalo is not doing, and Rochester is 
at the very least, Rochester is going to be locked in a playoff battle. You want to be in that position if you're the Buffalo Sabres. You want to be relevant in the final weeks of the season. So that type of experience is very, very valuable, which is why I think despite his top 10 numbers in the AHL right now, I think he needs to spend most of his time this year in the AHL and then heading into next year, you see what you have. Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess it's, I, I, I think just the fact that the Sabres don't have, like they don't necessarily need to be good right now. Um, that they, they can necessarily like see what they have in Jack Quinn and, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that, like, they should, like, you know, give him top six minutes and, like, if he's not, like, good, then, yeah, that could be a hindrance, of course. Um, like, or if he's just not performing, that could be a hindrance. But I, I think it could be good just to get him a sneak peek of what he'd be waiting for in the NHL and then he can work on that stuff in Rochester. But I will admit that, like, this injury that will keep him out for four weeks um, probably... Not great. So so maybe he will just spend the rest of his time um, in the AHL because of that. Um, I will also keep in mind uh, for any Sabres fans who are saying, well, if they keep him up long enough, maybe he's going to do so well that it'll cost us a few points in the standings and we won't finish dead last oh, and get the best no. chance to draft Shane Wright. I will remind Buffalo fans, uh, the lottery hasn't taken them too kindly, so yeah. I don't think it matters where they finish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're still going to need some luck from the hockey gods if they want Shane Wright. So. That's true. But, it, I mean, it, 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 honestly, where they finish, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I think I think Buffalo at this point, like, you know, I, I think they just want to see some hope anywhere if that <laughs> comes from uh yeah, yeah if it, and Darlene is finally performing i don't know if you saw this but yeah it's like 14 points in 13 games or something like that that's uh, pretty good yeah so uh i don't know if i got that exactly right but i know he's he's been on a, a hot streak lately but yeah i mean i don't know i i think if you're buffalo especially after that bills game yesterday i think they uh you know, they they just want some hope. It, like they've they've probably given up hope that they're even going to get Shane right. So, so I, I don't know. I I, well, I they've got necessarily... nowhere to go but up. Like exactly. they've traded every single significant piece yep. that they were worried that wasn't going to stay. Right. So, I mean, they, like they know yeah. what they have, and they just need to build on the core that they have. I mean, like yeah, if if Rasmus, uh, Darlene, uh, Dylan Cousins. Uh, Casey Middlestad, who's coming, who's finally healthy again. Alex Tuck, who they got in the Jack Eichel trade. Yeah. Um, we're about to talk about Peyton Krebs. Yeah, like this Jack Quinn guy. Um, you know, the the Yuko Pekka Lukanen has played a little bit here. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, things are kind of looking up for them. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. It's it's not like you know if they don't end up getting Shane right, they'll probably be in the top ten anyway. So. Um, it, it, it's, 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 it's bound to get better. I have hope for you guys. And this is coming from a Bruins fan. So, so what do I know? Um, anyways, uh, speaking of Peyton Krebs and the Sabres, um, he's, he's been pretty good too. Uh, he, uh, of course he was involved in the, the Jack Eichel trade. Um, and he was a big piece in that, uh, trade that ended up making the move. But uh, when he was on the Henderson Silver Knights, he had five assists in two games. And then he goes to Rochester, um, where he has 10 assists and four goals 
Uh, that's 14 points in 16 games. So not as good as five points in two games, but still not bad, 14 points in 16 games. Uh, I think that would make him, um, if I did, I, I had the, the stats up here, um, I have a combination of looking at H, the HL website and the Elite Prospects website. Um, he, so he had 19 points in 18 games um, overall um, in the HL. Uh, he, so now he's brought up in, to Buffalo now. Um, he, uh, he's played f- uh, quite a bit now. Um, and he had, um, during this time, he has, he's had an average of 14 minutes of ice time, of three points in 16 games, but he just had a two-goal game against Philadelphia on Saturday. So, so things are looking up. So it, it, maybe he is starting to figure things out. Um, but I do get the sense, what's interesting is, is that even though he scored those goals, I do get the sense that he's more of a playmaker and not much of a sniper, which is fine. But, uh, but it is interesting that he ended up getting like two goals. Um, and that, that's something that is kind of not expected out of Peyton Krebs here. But uh, it does look like that they are giving him time to play in, um, in the NHL this season. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I mean, I, I, of course, it's only one game that he had where he had two goals. But, you know, if we see more of that, then that, it's great to see. Um, I guess he is on the third line here, according to depth charts that I'm looking at. But... Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's kind of the same thing with Jack Quinn. It's just like, you know, your your team st- stinks right now, and you're just playing for the future. So might as well like get Peyton Krebs accustomed to the NHL. And as long as he's like performing or just doing all the right things, then I I don't see the harm in uh, letting him play. Um, but but yeah, maybe there is I don't know maybe three points in sixteen games. That might be a little bit of cause of concern. Maybe he's not ready just yet, but we'll, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I again, like like you said, it's it's about giving guys opportunities to succeed. He hasn't played in the AHL since December nineteenth, so almost of, actually just over a full month now. Um, it should be noted that after his two assists debut with the Henderson Silver Knights and then the three assists debut the game after that, um, his next multi-point game wasn't until November 26th, so almost a full month after. Uh, the good news is a couple weeks later, he had another three-point game with the Americans, and then his final game against the, um, his most recent AHL game he had two goals on five shots against the Hershey Bears. Um, and one of those goals was a power play marker. So on the season uh, with the Americans, since the uh, Jack Eichel trade, he has 14 points in 16 games, minus 10. But again, the Americans give up a lot of goals, so that doesn't help. Uh, but he has three power play goals, two game winners, and a shooting percentage of 17.4. Four goals on 23 shots. He doesn't shoot the puck a lot. Which is again part of the reason you mentioned to um, his playmaking abilities. It, obviously, it's tougher to score goals if you're not getting too many shots on net. Right. So if, if he does shoot the puck uh, a little bit more, I'm interested to see how many goals he could get. The one thing that also intrigued me about that Philadelphia game, where Buffalo won six three, I think the final score was, 
but it was 4-2 after the first, and in the early stage of the second, it was 5-2. Peyton Krebs scored the 4-2 goal and the 5-2 goal. And in between all of that in the second period, he was making good plays away from the puck as well. He was engaged when he didn't have the puck. You love to see that as a young Sabres team. You love to see the young prospects make a fair bit of noise. He's going to be 21 years old in a couple of days from now. Um, so you're, you're, you're looking at a guy that's still relatively young, six foot, 180 pounds. There's, there's definitely a, a lot to build on there. And it's just a matter of continuing to refine his game and giving him chances to succeed. If it's not working in the NHL, because as, as you mentioned, he has played a fair bit. I would probably send him down to the AHL and see where things are at the trade deadline. Uh, like I said, when we kind of see who is still left on the on the Sabres this year. Three points in 16 games, minus 10 rating at the moment with Vegas and Buffalo this year. The ice time isn't where you would... Uh, the, the ice time actually for, for rookie forwards is probably where you'd expect it. Uh, in four games with Vegas... His um, ice time was 11.26, as a matter of fact. Um, but e- even then, you're not really giving him top six minutes. So just give him whatever chances you can up in Rochester, get him engaged in a playoff battle, and go from there. Um, th- this guy was, I believe, the captain of the uh, Winnipeg Ice last year in the WHL. Tremendous season uh, with the Winnipeg Ice last season. Just keep giving him chances to succeed wherever that may be. His time in the NHL will come, and um, he's a pretty versatile left winger for them. Um, and and again, the, the key, as I mentioned with Buffalo, with their past promising prospects has been development. So don't, don't, don't feel like just because you have a lot of these young players that you have to use every single one of them on the NHL roster. Use them if the time is right. Um, I don't really know if the time is right from an offensive perspective for Peyton Krebs to be playing consistent NHL minutes. Um, I would like, I would, I'd probably think at this rate, send him back down to the AHL and then bring him up to the NHL if he kind of excels in the AHL. Because it's, it's just been a case where he's up and down, not in a consistent setting. If you look at Jack Quinn and his NHL debut, and while it was a very good NHL debut, um, they it didn't take Buffalo long for uh, for them to send him down. And then when he got sent down, he had a couple of huge games and they brought him back up again. So don't, don't feel like if you're Buffalo that you're pressured just to keep this guy up for the sake of keeping him up. Yeah, yeah, I do wonder because it does seem like they need they have pressure to get him going because they got him in the Jack Eichel trade, so they wanted to show their fans like, see, this is what we got. Like, you know, it was disappointing to them, but like, oh yeah, look at this. But yeah, I guess you do bring up a good point, and like the Sabers do have a history of not developing their prospects um, as much as they should. But I don't know. I I I can see there also being a benefit of them just just having him up there but yeah it doesn't seem like he's performing but yeah maybe the two goals is the start of something we'll see but who knows um uh speaking of which before we move on i did mention rasmus Dahlin, um and he's been hot lately he has in fact he has 13 points in his last 14 games so 
so That's yeah, still near a point per game, pretty good. Yeah, pretty good for a defenseman, exactly. Um, all right, so the next thing we're we're just going to these are just guys that we're just going to mention, but uh, but yeah, we we won't go like long form like we did before. Um, yeah, Dylan Holloway, I I did want to mention because he had a wrist uh injury a wrist injury, um, and uh, that kept him out for four months. Um, but, uh, but then he recently, uh, just came back onto the ice. He's playing for Bakersfield Condors. Um, and he ended up having a three points in two games so far. Um, I do mention this because I I think it does make sense to keep him in Bakersfield. But on the other hand, when you look at the Oilers left wingers, uh, they have Ryan McLeod, Warren Fogle. Devin Shore and Tyler Benson. Those are your four left wingers right now, and um, and it, yeah, I guess Zach Hyman is injured and, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins is also out. So so you, you, those guys are you know that may be a, a big reason why even the Oilers are struggling is because they don't have Hyman and Nugent Hopkins. But you know uh, maybe if if the Oilers continue to struggle. Um, Maybe they will add, and Nugent Hopkins and uh, Hyman are out for longer than we think they are. Um, yeah, I don't think it would hurt them to just put in Holloway and see what he can do. Um, especially if he can, like, I know two games is two games here, but um, but yeah, especially if that, we can, we can see what uh, he's made of um, in Edmonton. Should also be noted that looking at uh, Bakersfield's roster, their highest scoring left winger is a guy by the name of James Hamblin, who has nine goals, 14 points in 25 games. The second highest scoring left winger on that team with six goals, nine points in 29 games, Tim Schaller. Wow. Oh, Tim Schaller. I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a brewer name uh, once upon a time. Uh, uh, so yeah, there, there's needless to say the left wingers in Bakersfield. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I call them better than the likes of Dylan Holloway and Brandon Berlin. Yeah. Um, this, uh, these next two are along the same lines as the Buffalo Sabres guys that we just talked about, but uh, Mateus, Maselli, and Jan Jenik, um, both guys that we talked about in um, in our prospect review and stuff like that. But um, but they're the the best players in uh, Tucson right now for the Arizona Coyotes. Um, Maselli has thirty three points in twenty nine games, especially him. Uh, Jenik has been good too. He has twenty one points in twenty four games. I believe Jenik did play had a stint. In the NHL, I don't think uh, Maselli has played yet, but I, I I do wonder if maybe they they get to see what he uh, what either one of those guys have to offer um, uh, in the NHL because it's like but like I don't think it's it's going to be a, a a harmful thing for them because they've you know the Arizona Coyotes stink. And I don't think Janik or Maselli are good enough to like keep them out of the Shane Wright sweepstakes. So yeah, might as well see what you have in Janik and um, and Maselli. Uh, Janik did play three games in the NHL, but he didn't have any points. Um, and yeah, I don't know what uh, about Maselli. Let me look at him. 
Miscelli has not played in an NHL game yet. Okay, Miscelli has not. So, so yeah, maybe they. Um, Maybe we'll see, but yeah, I, I think I would assume you would leave them in the AHL, right? Yeah, uh, for Ian Yannick, it should be noted that last year he had two goals in two games, but he only averaged 12 minutes and five seconds per game, and not a single ounce of that time was spent on the power play. Uh, this year, he has gone pointless in three games. You know what his average ice time has been over that time? What? Six minutes and 42 seconds. Wow, wow. However, to be fair, he has nine hits and two blocks. So, I mean, no goals, no points, and only two shots in those three games aren't impressive, but at least he's doing something in that 642. Nine hits in three games, you know, that's three hits per game. Pretty good. So I I admire that part of his game is at least getting involved there. Uh, Minus 13 in the AHL across 24 games this year, but 21 points in 24 games, none of them goals. I like to see that. Uh, better than his points per game total last year in the AHL, he had 14 points, six of them goals in 29 games last year. So he's close to that point per game threshold this year. Um, plus minus uh, is around the same as it was. Uh, in eight, or, uh, sorry, in 53 career AHL games, he has three power play goals. Five of them have come this year. Um, so he's uh, producing on special teams there. His shooting percentage has gone up from 9.2% to 17%. That's pretty good. Um, taking 53 shots in 24 games, that's pretty respectable too. And uh, there, there are some points where he's going consecutive games without a point. That was more so at the beginning of the year. But um, I see in mid-November a four-game point streak. Then I say... Um, Multi-point games in two straight, that's good, too. Uh, At the moment, he's currently on a four-game point streak in the AHL, so it's it's not like he's blowing the league up. At the same time, though, he's still putting up respectable numbers. And on a team like Tucson, where the scoring hasn't been relatively high, like their third scorer is Michael Carconi, and he has 19 points in 28 games. That's your third-leading scorer kind of indicates where the rest of your team is at, especially when you consider that um, their 10th leading score has nine points. Right. Um, so o- overall, I, I, w- I, would, I wouldn't call the, the Roadrunners uh, one of those high-flying teams. Michelli, as you mentioned, Brett, um, the, is the top player with 33 points in 29 games. He's also a top 20 scorer in the AHL as well. And he's also a rookie, unlike Yannick. So he's near the top of the rookie scoring leaderboard as well. 60 shots in those 29 games, so that's two shots per game, pretty respectable. Uh, Four power play goals, which I also like. Only a minus two, which is also something to keep in mind there. Uh, Shooting percentage, 16.7%. Love that. Uh, Best game of his AHL career, he's had a few. There was uh, three goals and five points on uh, November the 12th against the Ontario Reign. Ontario being California, not Ontario, the province. Uh, He also had a goal and four points on November 27th. That was against the Abbotsford Canucks, Vancouver's affiliate. Uh, And uh, sprinkled in there a couple of three-point games too. So when you also consider that this is also his first season of the AHL, that's part of the reason why I keep him down there. Um, Mostly because... Arizona's not going to be doing much of anything. You're not really going to be given 
too many chances to succeed there. So I would keep him and Yan Yannick in the NHL for as long or in the AHL for as long as I possibly can. However, I will add a caveat to this. While Arizona isn't doing that well, they have a lot of guys who are going to be on expiring contracts at the end of this year. A good chunk of those are forwards, and a good chunk of those are probably headed out the door uh, closer to the trade deadline. So I can see a scenario where towards the end of the season, Yannick and Michelli are brought up, and they see what type of games they can provide at the NHL right now. But that will probably be, like I said, late March, early April when we see that. How long they would be up for, I'm not quite sure. But I think that would probably be the time to call them up, even if it's just for like five, six, seven games to see what they have. And then you'd send them back down to the AHL to finish up the season. But for now, I keep them down in the AHL and let them develop. Yeah, yeah, I guess I agree with that. I, I guess I, I mean I think we we agree to disagree on this point, but yeah, I I, I think yeah. I I understand. We, we slightly agree and mostly disagree. I yeah. think there are some parts where I'm the same yeah. field. Um, okay, the next guy is it's more to just note how good this guy has been in the AHL, yeah. um, and less to do with because I I I I um, I'm stumbling my words right now. Um, I. I've noticed, or Steve told me before the show that we shouldn't include this guy because there's no chance that he's going to be up here. But I do want to mention that Dustin Wolf has been insane um, in the AHL. Um, and he has, uh, in 22 games, he has a 930 save percentage and a GAA of 2.10. I'm also noticing that he has zero shutouts, which is impressive when you <laughs> consider the fact that he has a 930 save percentage. Um, and he's 17, 2, and 3. Um, in those also games. leads the league in wins, in case you're wondering where yeah. that ranks in wins. He's first. Yeah, there's, uh, yeah, he's uh, third in GAA, um, although the two guys uh, ahead of him have played in 11 and 14 games. And then let's see about save percentage. And there's only one guy ahead of him in the. Um, in the save percentage. And it's the same guy, Akira Schmid. Um, I think he's the devil's prospect guy. Um, yeah, it should also be noted, by the way, Dustin Wolf is a rookie. Yeah, Dustin Wolf is a rookie too. Yeah, what's what's also interesting is I'm looking at his elite prospects page is, uh, so he played in Everett's, the Everett Silver Tips um, last year uh, where he had a 940 save percentage in, a, in 22 games. But he did play three games in the AHL where he had an 895 save percentage in three games. Um, so, so it's interesting that he went to Stockton um, and then he wasn't good, but now he's just on another level um, this time, or he's just figured things out. Who knows why um, that happens. But um, but yeah, it's just interesting that all of a sudden he's he's been pretty good. Um, I The one thing I will say, though, is that, yeah, we probably won't see him uh, this year, especially since both Dan Vladar and Jacob Mar- Markstrom have been good for the Flames. But I will say that um, on one hand, that uh, Vladar is an RFA in two years. Um, so maybe we'll see, like, you know, there is a chance that maybe Vladar gets um, traded uh, before the deadline or something like that. And we can see maybe a taste of Dustin Wolf if the Flames are serious about it. Um, 
because I, I think Dustin Wolf is like no like Vladar has been great, but um, I think uh, Dustin Wolf has been um, is the franchise goalie that they can set apart uh, their team. And then the other thing is is that like you know you could ha- end up having a Florida Panthers situation uh, where even though Markstrom has uh, five more years left on his contract, uh, I could see towards the end of that. Um, that uh, contract that Dustin Wolf will outplay Jacob Markstrom and Dustin Wolf will get more uh, starting time than the Markstrom will. So there is definitely potential there for Dustin Wolf to uh, to go ahead of Markstrom, but it is definitely a long term play. And of course, you never know with goalies, and who knows. But I, I I think it's it's a good sign that Dustin Wolf has been amazing so far in the AHL. Yeah, when you look at the Calgary Flames, it's hard to believe that it's been like nearly 10 years since Mika Kippersov right. retired. And they're still That's looking true. for that legit franchise goalie. Uh, and it took them a bit to find that after Mike Vernon left, too. Yep. Um, but they, they might have found it with Dustin Wolf. Of course, it's uh, too early to say. You're wondering uh, why the GAA and save percentage weren't as good last year. Um, his first AHL game, five goals against on 11 shots against the Marlies yeah. on February 21st. So that's not a good start. However, his next two games, all against Toronto, the following uh, the following week, uh, it, it, between January or sorry, between February 21st and February 26th of last year, that's where he got those three AHL games. So the first one was a disaster. The second one, he stops 36 of 38, and his team wins. Then he stops 26 of 27 the next game, and, of course, his team wins that game. So a rough debut basically led to those eh, not really great numbers. Um, outside of that, he was he was pretty good. It was just an awful debut that kind of set him back. Yeah. Um, this year, obviously, the GA, the save percentage, the wins, everything is there. And like you said, no AHL career shutouts to speak of just yet, uh, which I think makes it all the more impressive. Um, His debut start this year much better, 34 saves on 35 shots. Unfortunately for him, he was the hard luck loser because they lost 1-0 in overtime, of course. Um, So that that was a a tough pill to swallow there. Um, But then he goes on a five-game win streak after that. Um, and his first regulation loss actually didn't come until January 4th. So all of 2021 from October to December, not a single regulation loss to speak of. He's looked a bit more human recently, but even still, uh, going on that five-game win streak after his uh, debut OT loss, and then reeling off, let's see, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten wins in a row pretty impressive and even still playing 500 a record hockey it's 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 pretty incredible the amount of games he's actually given up three goals or more is five yeah three goals or more that's only happened five times the rest is two goals or less and again no shutouts to speak of there in terms of the highest save numbers i see I see a couple in. I see um, when when uh, when it goes over thirty. I see most of them in the thirty to thirty-five range. But he uh, stopped forty-one of forty-five 
in his sixth AHL game. You had um, another game as well where he stopped uh, 33 of 34. So there are a couple of dandies. He hasn't really been tested all that much. But when you consider that he's also top 10 in shots uh, faced and top 10 in saves, and you consider the performances that uh, he's put forward in a lot of those games, you start to realize how good this kid is. And the fact that the heir to Carter Hart and Everett, uh, it wasn't a case of, oh, you know, this guy played in front of a good team. He is that good of a goaltender. Um, the, the thing that you mentioned about the current Flames tandem is part of the reason why I just keep him in the AHL and continue to give him opportunities because as long as Dan Blotter and Jacob Markstrom are getting the job done, I don't see the need to bring up Dustin Wolf. Yep. If you're if you're monitoring his development, like I said, give him the, the primary chances to get good results. Don't bring him up for the sake of bringing him up if it, if it doesn't make any sense. Now, obviously, if there's an injury, then that's a different story. If you need a goaltender, then, hey, he's your guy. But I, I don't really change anything if, if the two goalies that I have in the system right now are doing a good job. Bring, bring him up if you know he's ready. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I guess that's fair, too. And also, like, the Flames are on the verge of making the playoffs. So it's like, are you really going to try to, like, bring in this rookie unless you're really def- desperate? Um, and you never well, know. They also have games in hand, too. That's what people forget. Sure. They've had a lot of games postponed, like the Oilers. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, too. Um, okay, so this last guy, um, I'll admit, is a bit of a homer pick on my end. But, uh, and, like, not to mention all the other guys that we've mentioned, like, you could see them being, like, in a top six role. I don't know if I see Oscar Steen being in the top six, but, it's, you know, you never know because this is how Brad Marchand got his start uh, where he started off as a fourth liner, then worked his way up the lineup. Um, but, yeah, anyways, Oscar Steen has been incredible in the AHL. Uh, he had uh, 20 points in 16 games. Um, he's a right winger. Um, and then, um, yeah, he has 10 goals and 10 assists. And then he gets called up to Boston – um, and it, it's interesting, too, because he, um, like, uh, Carlson Kuhlman was in that third line right-wing spot uh, for a little bit, but then he gets waived. Um, they've tried a, a bunch of different guys on the third line there, and none of them ever really stuck. But then you have Oscar Steen, and then he had, like, um, every now and then, because, you know, I've, I've been watching all these Bruins games, um, he's like, he's found great chemistry with Charlie Coyle and Jake DeBrusque on the third line. Um, there was also this one goal where he kind of pulls a Trevor Zegris flying Z move, but instead of finding another teammate to teammate to bat it in, he, he hits, uh, he's behind the net. He hits the goalie's back and it go, the goal goes in, which is impressive nonetheless I don't know if he tried to do that but it just shows that that's his ability of where he's at um it looks like the Bruins are giving him more chances but I keep on seeing him like being called up and then being called down whenever the Bruins have a lot a lot of breaks or stuff like that but um so far I've liked I've loved what I've seen out of him um having said that like I don't think he'll 
ever like replace Dave Pasternak, of course. Uh, Craig Smith, he's been struggling, but uh, he's he's been good with Bergeron and Marsh on still. So um, so yeah, I, I I liked what I've seen, and I think that's kind of what the Bruins need is like a good depth player. Um, and like I said, yeah, you, like this is how Brad Marchand uh, came into the league. He started off as a fourth liner, and then he uh, he just kept on getting better and better. And he was good as a fourth liner, then he was good as a third liner, then he was good as a second liner, and then all of a sudden he's on the first line, and and now he's like a heart candidate, uh, a candidate. So so yeah, it's. Um, uh, so I, I'm not saying that Oscar Steen is the next Brad Marchand, but uh, it is a trend that the Bruins do in terms of developing their players as they start him off in the bottom four uh, roles and just see how he does, how they do, um, and then they you know they slowly move them up. But um, but yeah, I don't know if he'll necessarily will necessarily see him on the top lines unless there's a major injury. Uh, but uh, but yeah, he, he's he's looked so good so far. Um, what's also interesting is is that he had twenty points in sixteen games this year for Providence, but last year, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to predict that because he had eleven points in twenty three games for Providence. Um, so he made quite a jump uh, or improved a lot over the summer. Um, to the point that uh, yeah he's he's just been very impressive in the AHL and I think he's just he's shown enough in the AHL that he deserves a roster spot in the NHL and that was a big reason why Carson Kuhlman's got um, got uh, got waived so uh, and he's now in Seattle. Yeah, prior to that, eleven points in twenty three games. He had twenty three in sixty. And uh, took 48 penalty minutes uh, his rookie year with the Providence Bruins. Um, his shooting percentage has also gone up um, significantly this year, but even last year. 8.6% uh, as a rookie in the AHL with uh, seven goals on 81 shots. Uh, went up to 11.8% his second year with five goals on just 42 shots. And then 10 goals on 42 shots this year for a whopping 23.8 shooting percentage. That out of those 10 goals, two have been game winners. None have been shorthanded. None have been on the power play. So the fact that he's got 10 goals in 16 games without any significant power play time is also pretty good to, to keep in mind. And in the NHL this year, again, making the most of his opportunities, averaging just over a shot per game and only getting two goals, but two goals on 17 shots, that's an 11.8 shooting percentage. Pretty good when you consider... That is, ice time is only 10.46, yeah. which is lower than the three games he had last year. And he's still making the most of his opportunities. And partially, that's because maybe Coyle and DeBrusque are his line mates. But even still, you're putting him in those opportunities, and he's still getting the job done. So it, it could be a case where Oscar Steen is just a late bloomer. Yeah, it's definitely possible. But... Um... Yeah, I mean, he, he's looked good so far, and I, I, like, I am watching this game right now, so um, he hasn't done anything in uh, this Ducks-Bruins game. But, but yeah, he, he has looked good, and I have the luxury of just watching him play. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's like I, I've tried to tailor my expectations ever because I got excited about Andrews Bork 
Uh, Jack Seneca hasn't reached the level yet. I haven't given up hope on Seneca, but he hasn't reached the level that I thought he would make um, now. So I, I'm trying to, like, you know, temper my expectations for, for Oscar Steen, but so far, so good. Um, and I will admit that if I wasn't a Bruins fan, we would not be talking about this right now. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm glad that you um, are, uh, like, um, all right. Um, and then that's about it for us here. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you guys next week. Um, you can listen to us on Spotify, our SoundClouds and follow us and subscribe us, subscribe to us there, um, on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at least up podcast. Um, you can get at us on Facebook as well at Lace Em Up. Um, that's about it. I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellswick. We'll talk again in episode 305 of the Lace Em Up podcast.